Negotiating a continuing resolution is top of mind for Congress right now to avoid a federal shutdown. The House and Senate Appropriations Committees are far from an agreement, though, on agency spending levels for fiscal 2024, just a few weeks off, really. But that's just one of many items on Congress's to-do list this fall that could have big impacts for federal employees. Here with a roundup, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's talk about the shutdown question. Everyone I talk to, Drew, says, yeah, it's going to happen. We're kind of like laying back and letting the wave hit, and hopefully there's no sharks in it. There's a new bill that would maybe prevent this altogether. Tell us about that one. It's both a new and old bill. It's been reintroduced a couple of times now, at least. It's in both houses. Senator Tim Kaine, as well as Don Beyer in the House, both introduced this bill just a couple days ago. It's called the End Shutdowns Act. Essentially, it would automatically kick in a continuing resolution starting October 1st, so at the start of the new fiscal year, if Congress can't reach an agreement on appropriations. And at the same time, the bill would also bar the Senate from taking up legislation that's unrelated to government funding. So this is kind of an attempt to support federal employees. That's what the introducers said about their bill. And shutdowns do have some major impacts for federal employees. Mark Goldwine is senior vice president and senior policy director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. A good share of federal employees will be sent home, and those that are deemed essential will continue to work temporarily without pay. Now, the good news for all of them is we've never had a government shutdown where they haven't ultimately gotten paid. So it may be a delay in their paychecks. It'd be extremely unlikely for them to not get their paychecks. But for those that are kind of counting on their paycheck at a specific moment in time, if the shutdown goes more than a couple of weeks, it can start to get it can start to get tough. Yeah, sure. This would not be the first time they've played that record. And there are some other bills still on the table that could impact feds, particularly one I think you and I have both written about this and followed this since time immemorial, seemingly, is the WEP and GPO, the Social Security deductions for certain federal employees. Right. So just as a recap, the WEP and GPO, there are two provisions of the 1935 Social Security Act. The windfall elimination provision reduces benefits or sometimes entirely eliminates them for some federal retirees. And then the government pension offset does the same for federal retirees, spouses and widows. There's a bill in Congress that's been around for quite some time, the Social Security Fairness Act. It gained a lot of bipartisan support last year, getting 305 co-sponsors ultimately, but was not enacted. This year, so far, the House version has 289 co-sponsors. So with just one more co-sponsor, it would reach that 290 co-sponsor threshold to force the Ways and Means Committee to take up the bill. So it's really close to that number. We'll see if the introducers of the bill would actually work towards a compromise before pushing it to that point. But it is gaining similar traction to what it did last year. There are several other bills as well that would similarly either reduce the impacts or fully repeal WEP and GPO, but the Social Security Fairness Act is the one that has the most traction at this point. Right. And we should point out there was a justification for the WEP and the GPO way back when because people were getting sources of income in retirement that were not related to contributions that they had not made to Social Security. So there could be some opposition that rises that we're not aware of on that. But again, like everything else on the Hill, it's wait and see. And uh, also drew some changes legislatively, possibly for the Thrift Savings Plan. What's the latest here? There's a couple different bills here that would affect the TSP. They've been introduced, but not gained a ton of traction yet. There's one that is a policy writer in the House Appropriations Committee's Financial Services and General Government Bill for 2024. 
It's similar to the language of the no ESG in the TSP Act. That was something that was introduced earlier this year. Essentially, it would prohibit TSP's mutual fund window or any mutual funds that TSP participants can invest in from being based in environmental, social, or governance or ESG criteria. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board has said this would most likely mean the end of the TSP's new mutual fund window. They can't keep track of the 5,000 plus funds that would be available. So that one is currently in the House's draft bill there, but not final yet. And then on the Senate side, there is an additional push to block TSP investments from going into China. That's a bill from Senator Marco Rubio that he's been pushing for a few years now. He proposed it as an amendment to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act this year, but ultimately it was not included. So not super likely for any of this to actually go through, but it is a concern for some groups like the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association for One, or NARF, and John Haddon, staff vice president of policy and programs, explained why. Certainly sympathetic to policies aimed at you know, limiting investments in the Chinese national security establishment or limiting investments connected to human rights abuses. But there's better ways to do it without shutting off TSP investors of all iPhone securities. We're at a stage in the legislative process where these are not real threats for this year, but the continuing attention that has been drawn to the TSP, whether it's ESGs or China-related, just raises the likelihood that this may happen in the future. Well, the other question for the mutual fund window, whether it dies a natural death because people aren't using it, that's another question, not because of ESG or because of China, but just because of the fees, and you can buy instruments with much lower fees elsewhere. Again, we'll have to wait and see. Schedule F, back again in Congress's eyes, at least some members would like to bring back that Trump-era conversion of certain senior officials into fire at will. Correct. There is legislation on both sides of the coin here for Schedule F. You have a bill. There was one last year from Jody Heiss and one this year from Chip Roy, and they similarly would enact policies similar to Schedule F, which was a now-revoked executive order from the Trump administration. On the other side of the coin, you have a bill from Senator Tim Kaine and Dianne Feinstein and theirs would essentially block any future presidential administration from executing something similar to Schedule F. They did submit that bill as an amendment to the NDAA this year, language to prohibit the return of Schedule F, but it didn't gain enough to receive a vote. So, you know, there's signs that neither side here really on whether you're for or against Schedule F, that neither is really giving up on their support or not support of it. But it's unlikely we'll see either go through this fall. Right. So there is lineup on both sides of this tug of war of the best thing could happen, the rope would break and they would both give up. And maybe then we could finally stop hearing this uh, broken record, if I can mix my metaphors. And my final question is about that 5.2% civilian pay raise that the president has proposed. It's not in any of the bills yet, and therefore Congress could either let it go by default, emphasize it. I guess they could make it 5.3% too if they wanted to. Right. We haven't seen either the House or the Senate Appropriations Committees say anything about the civilian federal pay raise. And as you kind of alluded to, that means that they are largely aligning with or silently endorsing, so to speak, the president's plan for the 5.2% pay raise in 2024. Of course, there's still time for that to change, but right now it's not looking super likely. If not, then we would see President Biden sign an executive order on the pay raise at the end of December. 
to be enacted in January for federal employees. All right. So a lot on the congressional plate, a lot to watch for as we fall towards the end of the fiscal year. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know 
that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, th- th- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do. 
or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do, even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.